Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts then and we'll uh, move into this, uh, this study together. Well, Father, we just thank you again for your word, Lord. Where would we be without it? Lord, it's your word that tells us everything we need to know. It's your word that has revealed to us who you are. Father, creation tells us there's a God. Creation tells us that there is something wrong with that relationship with our God as we see sin and death and sickness. Lord, we know that's not the way it was intended to be. But Father, it's your word that really fills in all the details that we need. It tells us that there is a saviour and it tells us who that saviour is. We thank you, Lord, that the volume of the book paints the picture of the person of Jesus. And so, Lord, as we continue our study this morning through Psalm 119, just speak to us, we pray. Lord, reveal more of yourself. And Lord, I pray also you reveal more of ourselves to ourselves. Lord, you know us better than we do. But Father, sometimes we need to be, Lord, just brought face to face with our lives as they are to realize how much more we need of you. And so, Father, we just pray for a work of grace. Lord, just minister to us now, we pray. Speak to us through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've uh, been going through roughly about eight verses a week because, as we've said already, that Psalm 119 is broken up into these blocks of eight verses. Each block of eight begins in the Hebrew with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Um, so we've kind of got now as far uh, this morning as Vav. Now, it's a letter in the Hebrew that is not very common as a starting letter to a word. So typically we see in here there's a lot of ands as we kind of start the sentences. Um, and that's purely because of the way the letter is used. It's used as a conjunctive to join things together. Um, so there's very much a theme that, that we're going to see here. I've been putting together these study notes and the intention is that when I'm finished I'm going to put it into some sort of kind of book form. But I've been just going through kind of titling each of the, the blocks of eight verses that we've been going through um, so far. Yeah, really that first block of eight, uh, Aleph, the first letter in Hebrew alphabet, is very much kind of setting the scene. It's that statement, again, of, of where we should be, the fact that there are blessings to be had, that there's a double blessing to be had for those that are undefiled in the way, that keep his testimonies and so on. And then it goes on to set this impossibly high standard that we can't keep. And that's the whole purpose of this. And we said before, it's very much like the, the Beatitudes uh, that Jesus gives in Matthew Chapter 5, he sets a standard there that we can't attain to. And that's the whole point. Because we can't keep the law. We can't keep the uh, expansion of the law, I suppose we could put it that way, that we read about in Matthew chapter 5, in the Beatitudes. You know, there's a standard that's set there that, that no human being could uh, could try, even by our best efforts, to, to keep. And that's what we get here. Because it's speaking about... Um, just walking with this uprightness of heart. Verse 8 tells us, I will keep thy statutes. I mean, that's an incredibly bold statement for, for a sinful being to make. And of course we realize that that's not natural. We, can, we need God's strength to help us. And that's why verse 8 ends with this reality check, which says, oh, forsake me not utterly. It's kind of like that, almost as if we suddenly realize what God's standard is and then we're brought face to face with ourselves. You know, every time in scripture somebody comes face to face with God, there's an acknowledgement of their own sin. Uh, you get a situation with Isaiah. Again, he's caught up in this vision. He sees the Lord. Woe is me. I'm undone from a man of unclean lips and so on. John on Patmos falls down as dead, you know, when he's brought face to face with Jesus. And when we come face to face with God, there's an interesting situation that occurs 
and I'm pretty sure it's in Second uh, Samuel, where the ark has been captured by the Philistines, it's coming back, and the the people of the town that are there take the lid off the ark, and a lot of them die, and people say, well, why did God do that? Well, it's because they're brought face-to-face with the law of God without the mercy seat. You see, the mercy seat sat on top of the ark, and that's what we need. If we're going to go to God and to God's law, we need God's mercy to be prevalent. And they remove, effectively, in type, the mercy. And they're brought face-to-face with God's law without mercy. And that's why they die. It's a very powerful object lesson that God gives us. And there's so many other examples of that in Scripture. And we'll build on that as we go through this morning. So the second block, as it were, again, it's just looking at our condition. It's looking at our need for for deliverance, for help from God. And of course, it's pointed out very clearly there that the solution to the problem is God's word. And that really starts this beginning of the journey. Uh, And then we get just each section, the the fourth section, Dalet, the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, is really kind of the battle of the flesh. It's the reality that we all struggle with the flesh life. And the psalmist makes it very clear. He doesn't hide from it. It's very open and very exposed there. But then we go on and we get to where we are this morning. We're going to be picking up this morning in verse 41. And I've entitled this section Growing in Grace because I really think at this point there is a growing. It's like we've been moving on this journey, getting to understand our own predicament, realizing that we need deliverance, we need help, we need grace. If we're going to grow and we're going to walk in this path that continually be, it continues referred to, the way uh, is mentioned a number of times we've seen already. Spurgeon starts uh, his commentary on this section and simply says, In these verses, holy fear is apparent and prominent. The man of God trembles, lest in any way or degree the Lord should remove his favour from him. The eight verses are one continual pleading for the abiding of grace in his soul. And is supported by such holy arguments as would only suggest themselves to a spirit burning with love to God. So as I said already, I think there's a kind of a tangible growing in grace we see. Uh, and it just reminded me of that verse we read about in Philippians 3.13. Paul says there that we should be forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. And I kind of get the feeling now that all that struggle and journey we've been going through, uh, that the psalmist has been going through, as he's been ex- just, just pouring out his heart, it's now come to that place of, you know, I want to forget those things that are behind. I want to move forward. I want to grow. I want to move on with God. We see two simple requests as we look at this section. Uh, the first one's in verse 41, which is, let your mercies come to me. We'll unpack that and talk in a moment. But then in verse 43, and take your word, not out of my mouth. You know, those are the, the, the two requests, and they're supported by these arguments, in a sense, that the psalmist gives, really pleading with God. You know, it's a great basis to argue with God on. And we, we get to stages that we do want to, in a sense, have those arguments. We don't necessarily feel that God is responding to us in the way that we want, or in the timing we want, or whatever. And so many times in Scripture you find those occasions where people do that, but they use Scripture to do it. Or they're appealing to God for something, and they use scripture. There's, there's so many, I mean, one of the great ones is one where, at the end of um, in Second Chronicles, Solomon gives this plea about if we were to leave this land, if we were to be you know, cast out of this land, but people turn to this place and pray. And he kind of gives this prayer, and then you find Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, using those words. 
using the words of scripture as the basis of his prayer. And it's a really good thing for us. This is another reason why it's important to try and uh, memorize scripture or just allow scripture to permeate our thinking so that when we pray, we're praying using God's word. And that's the basis. Because God will never deny or contradict his word. God will always respond on the basis of the promises he's already given us. God is unchanging. Romans 4.21 just says, what he's promised, he's able to perform. So again, if you just know the the progression then as we go through verse 41, uh, sorry, verse 42 and verse 44, you have the responses. The questions are asked or the pleading, and then it's, so shall I. If you look at it there, that both of those, verse 42 and verse 44, so shall I. It's like, Lord, if you do this, then I'm going to do this. I'll be able to do this. Lord, if you answer my request, so shall I, and, and go on from there. But then we build from there, and going into verse 45, it's, and I will walk, verse 46, and I will speak, verse 47, and I will delight, and verse 48, and I will meditate. You know, all of that is possible. If God leads, if God goes before us, then what we can do, well, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, is what Paul tells us. Philippians 4 verse 13. In uh, Exodus 33, there's a situation where Moses is on top of Mount Sinai and God is giving him this plan of what he wants him to do to lead the people. And Moses says, Lord, don't let us move a step from this place unless you go with us. And God promises to, to go before them, to lead them. Of course, we have that pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. The verse 15 of Exodus 33, this is just the Living Bible's paraphrase, which I just remember from a, from a child reading this, is, you know, if you aren't going with us, don't let us move a step from this place. You know, and that's a good, uh, in a sense, basis for us. You know, all of those things we're going to see, you know, I will walk, I'll speak, I'll delight, I'll meditate. They're all great things, but let God go first. Present your request to God, let God lead you. And then God will enable you as well. So let's uh, jump in and start to look at these verses as we go through them. So verse 41 then, Let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord, even thy salvation according to thy word. And notice again that pleading, according to your word. Because Lord, you've already said this, therefore on that basis I'm making this appeal to you. Yet we need mercy. You know, A lot is said about God's love. And possibly not as much is said about God's mercy. You know, God's love is indeed vast as the ocean, as we sing in one of our hymns. But in Psalm 136, it might be just worth turning to Psalm 136. It's only a few pages further on than where we are. But you'll, you'll see there uh, the way this is portrayed for us. I'll give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. And what does it tell us? For his mercy endures forever. You give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. And you know, it goes on, 26 times in that psalm we have the same thing. Now, you will find in some modern translations, they translate this as, for his love endures forever. And it's kind of a, a little bit of a, a disappointment in a sense, because there's a really, really good song. Give thanks to the Lord our God and King, his love endures forever. It's a great song, but it's taken from this psalm, and unfortunately... It's not love, it's mercy. Uh, is there a difference? Yeah, there's a really big difference. Uh, firstly, the word in the Hebrew is not love. It's the word is mercy. And the word that's used here for mercy is never translated as love anywhere in scripture. 
it's just a shame that those translations, modern translations, have kind of, I think, just missed something really important here. And, and there's something bigger than that as well. It's not just a, a semantics thing. You know, there's, there's plenty of words in scripture for love, the clearest one being ahab, you may have heard that before, particularly in the Hebrew. You know, there's, there's lots of words for love, but the word here uh, is, is not the word for love. I want you to think about this. Think about God's love for a second. God's love will never change. Okay? Even for those who reject him and go on to spend an eternity in hell. God will never stop loving them. And I think just like a, a good father would never stop loving a prodigal son, God will never stop loving those who he's created. Even those who then do get to spend eternity or choose to spend eternity separated from God. You know, we're told in Romans 5, verses 6 or 8, that it was while we were yet sinners that God demonstrated his love to us by sending Christ to die for our sins. So, yeah, God's love for me didn't increase when I gave my heart to him. You know, God's love is unconditional. So love is one thing, and love is great and important, and we need it. God so loved the world. But look, the world, it wasn't just those who were going to be saved. But now just stop and think about mercy for a second. Because there was once a time when you and I were not beneficiaries of his mercy. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in trespasses and sins. goes on, verse 3 says, In times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, nature the children of wrath, even as others. John actually makes the point that for those who are living in a state where they have rejected Christ, for now at least, it says the wrath of God abides on them, not mercy, the wrath of God. The writer to the Hebrews speaks of a fearful awaiting of judgment for those who have rejected God. Paul again echoes it. He says, speaks of those who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. And then goes on to state that their expectation, he says this, should be indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil. You see, mercy isn't something that God shows to everybody. It's available to everybody, but not everybody avails themselves of that mercy through repentance, through putting their trust in Jesus, their faith in Jesus Christ. It's only once we come to that place of putting our faith and trust in Jesus' completed work that we pass from death to life. We pass from judgment to mercy. You see, it's only then that we can say, as we read in First Thessalonians, that he's delivered us from the wrath to come. James 3.13, it says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. But once again, it's for those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus. It's upon them that God will show his mercy. You know, I, I know God's love will endure forever, and we, we praise him for that. But it's mercy that I want to know is going to endure forever. I want to know that God's mercy is going to endure and keep me in that place that he's now put me by his grace. It's his mercy that ensures my salvation. It's his mercy that has spared me from wrath. Not because I can earn it or deserve it, but again because of his goodness and grace. And if I may say it this way, God's love for me on its own is not enough. As I said, there will be people that will spend an eternity in hell and I believe God's love for them won't be shaken, won't change. God will not stop loving them, just as you couldn't stop loving a child. Even if that child was rebellious and wicked and but it's that mercy, again, that has secured our position. And as the verse says here, 
even my salvation. Yeah, and there's more here as well, because he says, let thy mercies, it's God's mercies, you know, this isn't just somebody else being merciful, this is God himself that he's pleading, let thy mercies come also unto me. And it's interesting, isn't that word also? It's like, you know, Lord, maybe I can understand why you show your mercy to other people. Why would you show your mercy to me? I don't, I don't deserve it. You know, and I guess the psalmist here echoing probably what we all know in our hearts that we don't deserve this invitation. But let my mercies come also unto me. Virgin comments and says, here is the first mention of salvation in the psalm, and it is joined with mercy. It goes on and says, what a mass of mercies are heaped together in the one salvation of our Lord Jesus. It includes the mercies which spare us before our conversion and lead up to it. Then comes calling mercy, regenerating mercy, converting mercy, justifying mercy, pardoning mercy. Nor can we exclude from complete salvation any of those many mercies which are needed to conduct the believer safe to glory. Salvation is an aggregate of mercies incalculable in number, priceless in value, value, and incessant in application, eternal in endurance. I love that. And as we said as well, the plea here is, Lord, I may not deserve it. It may be that your mercies come also unto me, but according to your word. Because God has promised, and because God has promised, God is faithful. And that is the basis that we go to God on. It's faith. That's simply all it is. It's faith in God. Faith in the Son of God that loved us and gave himself for us. Verse 42. So shall I have... Wherewith to answer him that reproaches me, for I trust in thy word. Now notice again, we're, we're building here. We're, we're building on what we've just said, because this is a social I So Lord, let your mercies come to me. And Lord, if you do let your mercies come to me, even your salvation, then I'll have a good reason. When somebody comes to me and reproaches me, when somebody comes and speaks harshly toward me or antagonistically, disparagingly, however we want to package that, I'm going to have an answer. One commentator put it this way. He said, his faith was seen by his being trustful while under trial. And he pleads it as a reason why he should be helped. You know, the world might think we're, we're foolish for our faith in Christ. But, you know, as I just said a moment ago, if his mercies do come to us, and they do, of course, the moment we believe, then we really do have an answer. Peter, in First Peter 3.15, says that we should be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in us. And what a great answer we have to give to someone who would reproach us. You know, to say that I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, and now I see. You know, that's a great summary that we've all got in our heads from the song already, from Amazing Grace. But you know, what we have because of that mercy that's come to us, we can have a peace that passes understanding. And I'll give you some references if you want to look at them. Isaiah 26 verse 3 Philippians 4 verse 7. We have a freedom from the bondage of sin. Hebrews 2.15, John 8.36. I have a confident knowledge of his presence. Many scriptures we could quote, but Hebrews 13 verse 5. I have the fruit of the Spirit at work in my life. Galatians 5.22 onwards. I have a joy above the circumstances. James 1 verse 2 and Acts 2, 28. 
I have a promise of eternity and life forevermore. Many Psalms echo that, but John 10.28 is that promise of eternal life. And we've also got that promise of abundant life and double blessings that we've already been talking about. You know, so because God's mercy has come to us, because of his salvation, what a great reason when somebody would come and say, huh, you're a Christian? Yeah, absolutely. Look at what I've got. You know, we've got many uh, talent shows on TV. And, uh, you know, Joy and I this year started watching The X Factor. We got through most of one episode and we'd had enough. And that's all we've seen. And that'll do. That was plenty. Yeah, but there are so many talent shows this year. Uh, well, I say this year, every year. They seem to be kind of increasing, don't they? You know, uh, and it's always the same kind of story. Somebody who is insignificant, who is, you know, I mean, uh, Ollie Murs was working in a call center and suddenly now he's a superstar. And, you know, all these characters, it's a very much kind of a rags to riches type of story, isn't it, for all of these people? They were nothing. They weren't anybody special. You know, had a difficult life, whatever. Very average, run-of-the-mill job. And suddenly, they're on the cover of magazines, they're on TV, and, you know. Well, think of the ultimate rags to riches story. It's the experience that you have. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were alienated from, from, as Paul says, the commonwealth of Israel, from those promises that God had given Israel of blessing. You were a stranger, and you've been brought in. You've become beneficiaries of this incredible family that God has invited you to be part of. You know, you've been invited to come and sit at the king's table, not as a a guest, but as the firstborn. You're given that top place. God says, come and sit here. Come and sit right at the top. And this is all yours. You know, that, that is the ultimate rags to riches story. You know, we think of people in the world and maybe sometimes we can allow ourselves to almost look envyingly at these people and think, oh, well, look at what they've got now and they've got this and got that. That's nothing. Look what you've got. Stephen Curtis Chapman has got that great song where he uses the example of the American, uh, uh, who wants to be a, be a millionaire. There's a chap in America called Regis, as uh, the equivalent of Chris Tarrant. And he said, you know, that actually for us as Christians, it's almost like sometimes that we've, we've won this, you know, million pounds, we've become a millionaire, but then we just go and hide it in a, in a biscuit tin. I mean, you wouldn't do that. If you won a million pounds, you want to shout it out, you want to tell people about it. And that's what we should be doing as Christians. We should be just so overwhelmed. You know, again, so shall I have. Think of what you've been given. So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproaches me because I trust in thy word. What a great place to put our trust, because God's word will never change. You know, my challenge, in a sense, for anybody that would dare reproach me or other people, other believers, is, well, what do you have as a result of your faith in nothing? You know, how's that going for you, really? Think about what you've got. Of course, we have so much because Christ humbled himself and allowed reproach to come upon him. That incredible exchange. Verse 43, let's move on. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. So now we're going to build on this again. For I hoped in thy judgment. This is a second request. And it's not a, a trivial request at all. I looked at this, I'll be honest with you, when I started going through my, my prep this week, and I read this verse over a number of times, I was thinking about, you know, what is really being communicated here? And I started, and my notes actually said, and I've scrubbed them all out, and I've started again on this verse, because I started thinking, well, this is almost a, I know there's no redundant verses in this psalm, and Spurgeon makes that point. 
But I always thought it's almost a redundant verse because God's not going to take his word out of our mouth. And, you know, we can, of course, hope in his judgment because there's that implication, for I have hoped in thy judgment, so Lord, please don't let me down. And it's like, of course, well, God was never going to let us down. And then I started thinking more about this. And this really is quite an important prayer for us to be praying. Because it's, it's not just a, a casual comment. I really think it's an emphatic cry. You know, it's really, my paraphrase, don't let there ever be a reason or situation that causes me to forget, or worse still, silence God's word. May it always be in our mouth and our lips. You know, and again, especially that we've travelled this far in this journey through this psalmist. This psalmist has got to this place. You know, there are situations that can overwhelm you in life. And the worst thing is to be in that situation and not be able to think of God's words, not be able to think of scripture, not to be able to turn to that one place that we know we can find comfort and rest and security. And, you know, the danger is that we allow our lives to be so consumed by things going on in the world. You know, we might be able to quote all number of different things. We might be able to say who's in this year's Bake Off or X Factor or who's leading the Grand Prix Championship this year or whatever. But can we recite scripture? That, that's what needs to be in our, in our mouths and in our hearts and our minds. You know, we need to be praying that there's no temptation that ever comes that would overwhelm us to the point that we just can't think of scripture. And you know, you may have been there that sometimes you get tempted and almost you want to block out God's voice. In many occasions in scripture people are, are, are there. What a horrible thing. What a horrible place to be. And I think the psalmist is really saying here, you know, look, I've come so far on this journey. I've learned so much through your word. I now don't want to ever be put back in that place where I don't want to hear your voice and I've not got your words in my mouth. You know, there's a situation, of course, with Peter. He finds himself making these bold declarations and then a few hours later, there's a servant girl around a campfire, just asks a few questions and he crumbles. His faith just crumbles. And he's there and in a sense, no longer is God's word in his mouth. Now all he wants to think about is self-preservation. You know, we live in a world that's presided over for now by the father of lies, Satan, who's the god of this world. You know, and the contrast is that we want to have God's truth on our lips. Take not thy word of truth utterly out of my mouth. You know, everything the world will throw at us ultimately is deception. And so we need to have God's word. We need to have that truth. You know, there is something special about actually speaking the words of scripture. It's great to memorize them, great to have in our minds and hearts, but sometimes just to speak things has real power. Uh, and Romans 10 verse 9 and 10 really echo that because it tells that, it tells us there that we should confess with our lips and believe in our hearts. And both of those things are important. It's not just what goes on in the heart. It's actually being able to say things. Again, having God's word in our mouth. You know, when you pray, use God's word. We've already said that this morning. When you talk to other people, if you're talking to believers, encourage them by quoting scripture. Not Thus says the Lord, and then give verse and chapter and everything else. But just let it be part of your natural conversation. Back in verse 29, if you look back in 29, it says, Remove from me the way of lying, and grant me thy law graciously. Now he's saying, Lord, don't take your word of truth utterly out of my mouth. I never want to be in that place where lying takes over. Whether it's lying to myself, lying to other people, or lying to God. So really, the psalmist here is just petitioning God. And again, gives 
as the reason that God should grant his request, the fact that he's banked all on God's judgments. In a sense, he's put everything in, in this one basket. God's judgments, of course, are just and true and faithful. You know, and I've hoped in God's judgments, and especially regarding sin in my own life. You know, and I don't want that old life to come calling again. You know, this is a real concern, I think, that the psalmist is putting forward here. Verse 44, so shall I keep, again, notice we're building on. So Lord, leave your, make me always to have your words in my mouth. Because I hope in your judgments. And then it is, so shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever. You know, if God's words are in our mouth and our hearts and our minds continually, we're going to want to keep his law. And that's really, the, it's just a, a natural reaction. Almost a chain reaction that's going on here. God will, of course, never let us down. If we've hoped in his judgments, we've got every reason to keep his law. Virgin also made the comment, particularly really aimed at at those in ministry, but he said, he who has once preached the gospel from his heart is filled with horror at the idea of being put out of the ministry. But, you know, that idea, I think, can apply to all of us, that for somebody who's taught God's word, the thought of being in a place where you could no longer do that is really not something you want to entertain. For all of us as believers, we should be in a place where we want to be speaking about the things of God. They should stir us. On to verse 45, and I will walk at liberty. Now notice this is just a building on these things already. Two requests have been put in and all this now is going to come out of that. It's quite simple. And I will walk at liberty. What liberty we have, what freedom we have. There's a song I remember years ago and just one of the lines of the song was, freedom came when I gave it all away. And that's what it's like for us as Christians, the freedom we have in Christ, the liberty that we have. The world cannot know or perceive the bondage that we've been taking out of and the freedom that we now have in Christ. You're trying to get someone in the world to understand the liberty that we have as Christians. is almost like trying to get somebody to imagine a new colour. It's not going to happen. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. You know, there's an activeness about this. This is, you know, not just I'm going to bumble through life, but I'm actively seeking now the things of God. You know, and I hope and pray that for you as you've kind of going on this journey, that you're wanting to seek the things of God. I hope that you've been reading even just a verse a day of this. And even just in that small thing, you're seeking His precepts. And what an impact, what a change in your life. If you've been doing that, you'll have already noticed. Verse 46 goes on and says, I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. Now, once again, I, I said already, I believe that the psalmist here is David, although not specifically uh, noted. But David had this opportunity to speak before kings, before he was a king himself, and then once he was a king. And he, he didn't hide the things of God from anyone. You know, he could have, for convenience sake, not spoken to other kings from other lands about his God because he knew they had their gods. No, no, David was quite bold in his faith. And you see that echoed throughout the Psalms that we have his name against. He says, I will speak of thy testimonies. Again, this is a, a chain reaction because of all these things that God has done because of the salvation, because of his mercy, because his word is in our, our mouth. Then we're going to speak. You know, if God's word is in your mouth, when you open your mouth, what is going to come out? It's going to be God's word. And that's what the point of this is. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings, before anyone. Nobody should be able to silence us. 
It's just such a natural thing. You know, I can't help but work talking about joy and talking about my children. You know, in conversations that come up, what did you do at the weekend? I can't help but talk about what Joy and I have done, or places we've gone, or what I've done with the kids. And so often I'll get my phone out and I'll show people pictures, I'll look, you know, look at the girls and they go, oh, they're so sweet. You know, but I'm proud of my family. Well, shouldn't we be the same regarding our relationship with Christ? You know, and really, you may not get to speak before kings, but you can get to speak before all sorts of people in elevated positions and places. We shouldn't be ashamed of this gospel that we have that we can proclaim. As Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Verse 47, and I will delight. This is another I will going on here, just leading on. I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. You know, once we experience even the faintest trace of the abundant life that Jesus promised, these double blessings that we've been, in a sense, seeking, you know, we, we can never be the same. We'll constantly crave more of Jesus in our life. And the word of God will no longer be just a book to us. You know, the word of God will be that source of living water that our souls hunger for. The world probably won't understand our infatuation with this book. But I know it's transformed me. I know it saved me. You know, and even once saved, I know in my own life, and I'm sure you can echo this, And I was still weighed down with worldly and fleshly ways. But the word of God has broken those chains. The word of God has set me free to live and to grow in the knowledge and grace that he freely gives. So I can say I will delight in his commandments because they've been my guide, my lamp. They've been like a steadying rod. They've actually been the path itself. And we've already seen these ideas come out. But they've they've also hedged me in to stop me wandering off the path. And wandering into danger. God's word has rebuked me when pride has tried to gain a foothold in my life. But it's always with just such a gentle tenderness. So as not to drive away a lost sheep, but to bring you back into the fold. Where again, our great shepherd can watch over us. Now that's why I delight in them. That's why I love them. John 1 John 5, 3. John says there, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. For his commandments are not burdensome. And then the last verse of this section, verse 48, says, My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved. Now, there's a repetition there. I said already there is no repetition, but in a sense this isn't a repetition, this is a building on. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved, and I will meditate in thy statutes. You you may have seen with Muslims, if they mention the name of Muhammad, they have to add on words after mentioning his name to state that he should be blessed and so on. You know, well, the psalmist here is a, is a much higher response because he's talking about God's very word. And he can't talk about God's commandments now without saying, you know, I, I love these. I love God's commandments. You know, and if people of other religions, of other faiths can be passionate about those things. Shouldn't we be passionate about the word of God? And, and again, I lift my hands. I think that's lifting our hands in surrender and in worship. And both are appropriate. You know, the commandments are the very breath of God himself. There's something very personal and very moving. For those of you who are married, you'll, you'll appreciate this. 
when you get to lie next to somebody, when they're asleep and you hear them breathing. It's really quite a, a lovely thing. And you kind of recognize at that moment that every breath is a gift of God. Well, likewise, Scripture is God-breathed. Scripture is God's breath. Every word is precious. You know, and when we have moments to be alone with God's word, to hear God's breath, to hear his voice speaking to you, there should be that profound sense of vulnerability in a sense. You know, for us, this is like nothing is hidden anymore. There's nothing that he doesn't know, nothing hidden from his sight. Hebrews 4, just turn with me. Such an applicable scripture at this point this morning. Hebrews 4, let's look at verse 12. I'm sure it's a scripture you know, but never hurts to look at it and read it. Hebrews 4, verse 12 and 13. We just read there, For the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. See, the word of God just takes all the guards down in our lives. He just speaks to us. You know, when we are alone with his word, there is no condemnation, but just an overflowing kindness. Back in Romans, Paul says, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. You know, God's word is that shelter from the storm. We're going to get to verse 103, eventually, God willing, and it just says there, how sweet are thy words unto my tastes. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And that's a, a building. We're not there yet. We've come to that place of kind of getting rid of and dealing with the, the, the mess that the world creates in our lives. And coming to that place where the psalmist is now able to say, every time he speaks about God's commandments, which I have loved. But he's going to move on to a place where he actually starts to speak of God's words. How sweet are thy words to my taste. It's sweeter than honey to my mouth. The real growing as we go through this psalm. I, I think it's just a, again, it's just a, an attempt to communicate how much his heart has been stirred. You know, you can't just speak of commandments, God's commandments, without that overwhelming sense of gratitude. It's like a pearl that's been discovered that should always be held close to the heart. I notice how it concludes. It says, and I will meditate in thy statutes. The idea there is to ruminate. To chew over and over sheep, you know this, how they have five stomachs and they keep regurgitating their food. They swallow it, they bring it back up again, they chew it over a bit more and every time they extract a little bit more goodness out of it. Well, that's what we have to do with God's word. When we meditate, it's to go over and over. And I don't know, I hope again you've been doing it, just take a verse a day, just read it of this psalm. And just keep going over it. You'll read it once and you'll go, okay, that's it, I think I understand it. And then you go over it again. And certainly if you start committing it to memory, and you start to think, actually, no, there's more to this. And then you start to, it's almost like you go through a door and there's another door. And you go through that door and there's another three or four doors. And it's like, where do I go? And you start exploring. And every time you open a door, there's more doors. That's what God's word is like. It's so rich. It's so full. And it's always so applicable to your situation. I'm not going to go into the same depth, but I just want to go through the next eight verses quickly. And I'm going to let you take time. I'm going to go into more depth in the notes. But the reason for this is, and I want to just try and just help you visualize here. If you imagine a rock climber, and I think it's a little bit like the journey so far going through this psalm. You know, it's going up a, a, a precipice, going up a real steep rock face, and it's hard work. 
You know, every time you're going to chisel in and get your, your hands and your feet locked in place before you move again. And it's a little bit like that as we move from living a worldly life where things of the world impact us and affect us and so on. And we still find ourselves yearning and craving after things of the world. And as the psalmist has moved all that away, he started saying, I want God in my life. I don't want the world. And he's getting to that place. And I think that we come here now to verse 49 to 56. And it's like suddenly getting to a place where we get a sure foothold. It's getting to that next level. If you just about see there, that same rock climb that you just saw has got to that place, standing on a very narrow ledge, but it's just enough to just pause and catch your breath for a moment. And that's where we are here, because if we just look at these verses, remember the word unto thy servant, which thou hast caused me, upon which thou hast caused me to hope. It's a reflection of all that we've seen so far. All the things that God has revealed and shown to the psalmist and shown to you and I. It's just, Lord, I just want to remember the things you've already shown me. The things you've already given me, you've caused me to hope. And then he says, this is my comfort in my affliction. It's not saying that we don't have affliction. But notice it's a very personal, that God's word becomes our comfort in our unique afflictions. Because it's my comfort in my affliction. We all have different afflictions, different things we struggle with. But now we've got something that is there with us. We have God's word. And notice, as he says again, for thy word has made me alive. You've brought me back to life. You know, spiritually we were dead in trespasses and sins. Now we've been made alive because we've been born again. But it's more than just being alive. It's being quickened. It's really living an abundant life that Jesus says he wants us to live. The proud have had me greatly in derision. You know, and, and the proud, of course, they do try to make us feel inadequate because of the belief, the faith, and so on. And yet, notice the response, yet have I not declined from thy law. That idea of declining is gradually going down. It's not a sudden change. It reminded me of that song by Casting Crowns, speaks a slow fade. You know, and the idea in the song is that, you know, sin isn't something that just creeps, just suddenly turns up and grabs you and that's it. It's a slow process. Satan will just gradually gnaw away until he gets what he wants. But the psalmist has come to that place now. We've got to that, that ledge. You know, the proud have had, notice past tense. They have had me greatly in derision. Yet I have not, again, past tense, I've not given in, and I've not declined from thy law. I'm not going to be in that place again where I get pulled back by the things of the world. And notice verse 50, I remembered thy judgments of old. It's just thinking back upon God and all that God has done. Even in his own life, in this short journey we've had so far, there's a lot of things we could look back on that God has already done. But just think back on through scripture, God's judgments, the way God has dealt with those that transgressed against him. Think of the flood. Think of Pharaoh in Egypt. Think of all those kings of Israel. We studied through the book of Kings not too long ago. And you see so many that rebelled against God and how they lost everything. I remember thy judgments of old, O Lord, and they have comforted myself. Spurgeon makes the comment, you know, that actually it's a really good thing when we can look at God's judgments and find comfort in them. But the reason is because we realize that God is a just and faithful God. And that actually this life that we've chosen to live, I mean, just go back to, Verse 30, 
I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments I've laid before me. That's what he says there. And now he says, I've remembered thy judgments. See, there he laid them before him. Now he's saying, I've remembered them of old. And they've comforted me. Verse 53 goes on. Horror has taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake thy law. Yeah, I, I think this is something very profound. But he's simply saying, I'm starting to see sin as you see it, God. Because suddenly, I look at the people, the wicked, that have forsaken your law. As I look at them, horror takes hold of me. Some of the commentators think that the idea is that as he perceives the judgment that's awaiting them, and that may be the case. I think it's more than that. I think it's as he starts to look at them and can look at the sin. Because he says, because of the wicked that forsake thy law. And I think the reason horror takes hold of him is not because of what's going to come to them, but it's because of sin itself. You know, and it's a good thing when we come to that place when we start to hate sin and we start to see it around us and abhor it. I just pray to God that we have the same verdict on sin that God does. Thy statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. We were talking earlier, Peter mentioned earlier about songs and how they are just full of words of scripture. And, and, And songs are so good to help us learn and remember things. And we are, in for all of us, we're in a house of pilgrimage. We don't live here. This is just a temporary residence. Just like Abraham, who could have built mansions. He was a wealthy man. He could have built great places and palaces in which to live. He, he chose just to abide in tents. Because he was looking for another city. His builder and maker is God. But he says that while I'm here in my pilgrimage, while I'm just passing through, well, your statutes have become songs that I sing. And isn't that the way it is for us? We've got so many great songs, the hymns of old, which are full of so much doctrine and truth. And in a sense, a lot of the the choruses today, which are full of so much intimacy, speaking of the love that we have, of our need for him, and so on. You know, songs are really good. I love worship. I love being able to worship God. You know, as I said before, if I could do one thing, teach or play songs, I'd do the songs. Because for eternity, that's what we'll be doing. In the light of eternity, Jesus will be teaching. I won't be needed to be teaching. Certainly not. And there's something really special about being able to just praise God. I remember my grand, big influence uh, for me when I was younger. I used to take the newspaper down after school every day. And I remember her saying to me about, you know, whenever you feel miserable, fed up, depressed, whatever, just praise God. Just sing. And as times I thought, well, okay, we'll try it. And I did. And what a difference when you praise God. When you praise Him through those trials and those difficult times. Because again, when you're praising God, you're using scripture as your basis once again. It becomes, well, speak of His commandments, which I have loved. I've remembered thy name, O Lord, in the night and have kept thy law. You know, the night is a time typically that's given over to sin and to things of the world. Darkness is a great cover and cloak for iniquity. So it's a great time to remember God's name. And, you know, all of us, you know, at night time when we get to the end of our day, that's when we want to be remembering God. Uh, throughout the day, of course, but we never want to get to the end of the day and not remember God. I remembered thy name, O Lord, in the night. When the world may be going about what it wants to do, getting into iniquity and all sorts, well, that's when we want to remember God. And have kept thy law. And then to conclude this morning, 
This I had, because I kept thy precepts. All of this is now mine. Everything we've gone through, all these verses, all these 56 verses to this point, is now mine. Nobody can take this away from me. This journey that I've, I've been on, the things that I've learned, going through these heartbreaking times, verse 28, my soul melts for heaviness, strengthen me according to your word. In moments of, of joy, open thou my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. But then straight in the next verse 19, I'm a stranger in the earth. You know, this up and down struggle that this psalmist has been going through. I, I personally have been kind of living this, and I, I pray and hope that you've been going through it too. But now, this I had. It, it's like, you know, sometimes you, and there's some of these games you play, you get to a certain level, and then you can bank it, and it's safe. That's what the psalmist is doing here. The, all, all the things we've learned now, we can bank them. They're okay, they're ours. Because God has done this work already. It will never be taken away from you. And now we're ready to move off the ledge and to start climbing up again. And it's going to be tough. There'll be challenges. There'll be things that we'll find hard. And the funny thing is, sometimes as you start to grow in knowledge and grace, rather than getting easier, it seems to get tougher. And you'll see the psalmist go through some incredible challenges and almost get to that place saying, why? Lord, I'm growing. I'm learning more about you. But why is this so hard? But then, as the trials seem to be magnified, so do the moments of joy as we start to see God's blessing more and more abound in our lives. Let's bow our hearts. Father, thank you again for this privilege of this journey that we can take together through this psalm. Lord, I thank you for the honesty that is here. I thank you that someone has trod this path already and has been inspired of you to record these thoughts Lord, these expressions of the heart. And Lord, may they impact us. Lord, as we see reflected in these things, our own lives, our own struggles. Lord, it is a comfort to realize that others have made mistakes and stumbled and they've fallen. But Lord, what a joy to know that you will pick us up. That Lord, with you we can run and not be weary. We can walk and not faint. We can rise up on wings like eagles. Lord, if we wait upon you. So, Lord, let us learn to do that. Lord, may we learn to love your commandments. Lord, may we want to have your word in our mouth at all times. May we never be ashamed, Lord, of your words, of your commandments, your precepts. Lord, just again, thank you for this time. Lord, we just again ask that by your grace and because of your mercy, that you keep us growing. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.